This is loudspeaker. Hi, and welcome to Connecting a Better World, where we spend time meeting some of the most incredible human beings who make this world a better place. We will learn how each individual took their ideas, mission, and purpose to create and serve others in business and organizations that surround social good, social entrepreneurship, and social impact, and find out how we, together, can further connect others to help. I am your host, Dr. Natalie Phillips. Today, I will be talking with Gerald Moore, speaker, best-selling author, and nonprofit founder, whose vision is to create opportunities for Black boys to participate in the high-tech workforce, to bridge the digital divide, and make a dent in the income-wealth gap, and rebuild Black communities and families. He is creator and founder of Mission Fulfilled 2030, a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to inspire, educate, and activate 100,000 Black boys in technology. I'm so excited to have somebody here with me. I met him on Clubhouse. It tends to be, you know, we're meeting a lot of my podcast guests, but it's because it's so incredible to be able to connect and like just listen to somebody just even for, you know, one short little room together as if we were at a conference together. And um, I'm intru- I, I'm excited to introduce Gerald because he kind of caught my attention, especially with what he's doing in his life. And I'm super excited to have him. So Gerald, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Natalie, for having me. It's truly a pleasure. Awesome. So let's get everybody introduced to you first. So tell me a little bit more about um, who you are. Like, what's your story? Well, I'm Gerald A. Moore Sr. And I had to add the A. Moore Sr. because there's a famous composer named Gerald Moore. And I need to bump myself up in the Google algorithm. On top of the fact that there's a Gerald Moore Jr., my son, who was a good college athlete. So I had to distinguish myself as Gerald A. Moore Sr. So let's get that off the table. Awesome. So I am <laughs> I am a um, nonprofit founder of Mission Fulfilled 2030, whose vision is to inspire, educate, and activate Black boys in tech and STEM. And we do this by creating programs that are led by Black males who are tech professionals. And in my career as a 20-year professional federal government contractor, I didn't see the increase of young Black males having opportunities to come into the field. And from my perspective and how I actually got into the field, which was non-traditional in the fact that I was a low achiever in high school, um, and and we'll talk about that further, I was a low achiever in high school, and I realized that no one was going to get the young boys like me who had great potential, but no guidance or role models to to have the opportunity to become a cybersecurity engineer. So I launched this organization in, in the hopes to increase the opportunities for young Black males in tech and STEM and to bridge the digital divide and make a dent in the income to wealth gap long term. So let's back up a little bit and let's talk about, um, did you have a role model or a mentor in your life when you were younger? Um, because you're, you know, going into the tech field, which will kind of come back as well. And now what you've grown with this nonprofit. I mean, did you have somebody growing up that you looked up to that? Um, I always like to get to the heart of the service. Like, where did that come from in you? You know, what what was um, the beginning of your life like? And did you have some sort of role model, model or mentor um, that... I guess, brought you up that way? Well, looking at the neighborhood I grew up in, I grew up in a low-income neighborhood. I went to a, a, a Title I dysfunctional school. Um, I'm from Rochester, New York, which is a blue-collar city. I didn't know any professionals growing up. My parents didn't know any professionals growing up. My mother's from South Carolina. My father's from Georgia. They met in upstate New York. Um, My father was the oldest of 12, I mean, was in the middle of 12 and dropped out of school because his parents passed away when he was 11 or 12. 
Um, but he was in the middle and his brothers and sisters kind of raised themselves. So he ended up dropping out of school, I believe, his sophomore year. My mother was the oldest of nine. And, um, you know, just trying to growing up, I didn't know any professionals. My father, I would say, is my biggest role model. And he gave me everything to do and what not to do. Right. He did everything I should do and did everything I shouldn't do. I called my father. My father was beautifully flawed. He's since deceased, but he was beautifully flawed in the fact that he drank alcohol every day. He was probably a functional alcoholic, dabbled in drugs a little bit, um, you know, was basically growing marijuana in our basement and doing all of these things that he always coached me not to do, but he did them. But he was very industrious. He was very industrious and worked on cars and kind of pushed me hard. Um, and I didn't want to do the type of hard work that he did. And I was very fortunate, and I don't know how I even got this way, but as a kid, everything electronic I had, I had to open it up. I had to open it up and see how it worked and, and how that thing. So I think, you know, I kind of had this engineering mind really young, but I never portrayed that type of talent and ingenuity in schools. And one of the reasons I probably didn't, I never had a black male educator in school. My whole K through 12 experience, I never had a black male educator. On top of the fact, not knowing any professionals and growing up in a neighborhood where you had to fight, I kind of went right into the mode of survival and how to navigate my neighborhood. So by 12, I had my poli first police encounter, you know, and that's kind of what happens to young black males. By 14, I got expelled from school. At 15, I did the Scared Straight program in Rochester, New York, you know, the infamous Scared Straight program. Like I did that program. People look at me now like, no, Gerald, not you. Yes, Gerald. Gerald was on that track. I was on the school to prison pipeline. Like that was the trajectory of what my life was at that time. Um, at 17, I fathered my first child. When he was three months old, I had full custody of him. So as a senior in high school, I did my whole senior year with full custody of my son. And let alone, I'm a child at that time. Like I remember like my mother, my mother was like, you did this. This is going to be your responsibility. I am responsible for you, but you are responsible for this child. And she made sure that I maintained that responsibility. I'm going to take you back a few steps. When I got expelled from school at 14, coming out of eighth grade, going into my ninth grade year, I was being referred to alternative school for basically problem kids. So fortunately, I got expelled at the end of the school year. So coming up into my freshman year, um, the school board meeting for me to get expelled, the superintendent actually participated in, which usually doesn't happen because he's too busy or, you know, he or she's too busy at that time. But I was the first expulsion meeting of the school year. So very fortunate. And this, this changed the trajectory of where I was going also. So I'm sitting in this meeting and you know, my parents are there, the um, the administrators from my middle school are there, and they're basically putting forth this recommendation that Gerald should be sent to alternative school, and they have what is probably the equivalent of a rap sheet, and they were going, well, he was suspended this many times, you know, these are his grades, and none of it was looking good, <laughs> until the superintendent has a folder, and he's looking through the folder, and he says, hey, has anyone looked at Mr. Moore's New York State test scores? And everybody's looking dumbfounded and they're looking at each other like, we got his rap sheet right here. He was suspended 10 times in eighth grade. So the superintendent says, we don't kick kids out of school that are testing at 12th year, 10th month and reading math and science. So what that means, coming out of eighth grade, I was virtually testing out of high school. Now, mind you, at that point, I was a D student. I was a D student who hated school, but at home, my father used to go to this bookstore called Worldwide News. 
And my father worked on cars, so he would go look at car books. I would go with Worldwide News and sit in the corner and read engineering books because that's no that's who I was. I needed to know how things worked. So we didn't have that at school. We didn't, you know, so they were teaching Christopher Columbus. I was learning engineering, right? So there was a disconnect there. And my father was one because my father dropped out of school. What he understood was, and I and, and this came out in a conversation he had with my mother after I got suspended one time. And my mother and my father are having this conversation and about how are we going to keep me in school. And my father says to my mother, it's not the school's responsibility to educate our children. How does the school know what our children need to learn to be successful? They don't. They don't know who our children are. And my father built this based on the fact that he basically educated himself through going out and reading books about what he wanted to do and what he wanted to learn to figure out how to earn a living for him and his family. Mm -hmm. So my father knew that I could read well. My father knew that I was industrious because I was always building and tinkering. And just coming from a blue collar city, what they knew was I would work. They knew I would work. Mm -hmm. I had a paper route at 12 years old that I got up at 5 a.m. every day and delivered the paper. So they knew that I would work. They knew I wasn't lazy. So, but at the same time, I'm failing school but yet I have these high test scores. So the superintendent says to me, you know, we're not going to expel this kid from school. Like it's not an education problem. There's not an education issue here. We need to figure out how to relate to this kid because clearly he's one of our brightest students. <laughs> right. So um, from that point, he asked me, what school do you want to go to in this district? And, um, at the time, there's a school called Edison Tech, which I ultimately graduated from, which was a vocational school where I actually took four years of electronics there. And I still didn't do well there Wow! because I was into the electronics piece. The educators who was teaching electronics wasn't that great. And just the other subjects, I could just care less. I was a good writer. I was a good writer. And I never forget, like my sophomore year in school, I kind of got deterred from writing because I was taking this, um, I was taking this, um, what do you call it? What do you call it? Um, it was a writing course where it was just, you just kind of write what you want, right? It's storytelling, right? <laughs> storytelling. And I would write these elaborate stories and I would always get a D. No matter what, I would get a D, right? So, the teacher had a student teacher who came in mid-semester. So the student teacher is there one day and the primary teacher is out and we were reading our stories in class. So I'm reading my story and I read my story and everybody in class, they're laughing because there was funny stuff in it. And, you know, I get a standing ovation for this, this paper I had written. So at the end, the teacher asked me what, what grade did you get on that paper? And I said, I got a D on this paper. <laughs> she said, a D? I said, yeah, I always get Ds. She said, I always get Ds. So she said, well, can I see we had these folders? Can I see the rest of your papers in the folder? And I gave her my folder and uh, we came back the next day and she was like, Gerald, we have a problem. And I was like, what? She was like, these are not D papers. And I was like, you know, you know, whether they're D papers or not, you know, is irrelevant because of the situation that I am with this, this school and this teacher who, you know, doesn't like me. He doesn't care for me. And it doesn't matter what I do. This is what I know I'm going to get anyway. So she was like, you know, can you rewrite these papers for me? Don't change anything. Just rewrite them for me. And I said, yes, I'll do that. She resubmitted my papers for writer of the week. I was writer of the week. I was writer of the week four months in a row off D oh papers. Oh my gosh. That is so crazy. Okay. So 
Man. Okay. So your dad, incredible. You know, absolutely. I love how you describe him as beautifully flawed, you know, and I mean, he still taught you a lot. And what's interesting is because I know that you, you're, you were an educator as well, right? Like you taught and your parent. So what's your view now on the other side, you know, and like, what if your, your um, son or daughter, you know, came to you and said, you know, exactly what you went through. I mean, I'm sure you'd have a different understanding now, right? Because you went through it. But what if they said, I'm just not doing good. What should I do? Or, you know, like I, I dad, I really don't want to be in school right now. Like, what would you say? So, so I have a daughter like that. <laughs> <laughs> like my middle daughter, like she hates school because she's a creative. She's a creative and school just doesn't meet her need of go there sit down, listen to the teacher, and there's no alternative perspective of what the viewpoint is on any subject, right? And because, you know, what what the education system is and traditionally has not been very culturally relevant, right? So when you come from a home that's speaking to your children about Africa and and how you got here, and how we got here and the school is portraying this other thing of of what's this altered reality just so people are not in arms my daughter's kind of militant and she's going to challenge that authority so i have to coach her through all the time to say hey this is just a path you have to take to get to where you want to go. We don't have to necessarily challenge what's right or wrong because they are not the determining factor of who you will become or where you can go. It's just the rite of passage that students have to go through, per se, the government, right? right. Per se, the government. And, and having to, you know, really be really informed and engaged and understanding, like my father told my mother in eighth grade, it's not the school's responsibility to educate our children. Now, it's unfortunate that our children still have to go through all of that other indoctrination, but it's still our responsibility to the additional things outside of the school system that we need them to be educated on. Yeah, that's interesting. That's not what I expected you to answer <laughs> at all. Um, but, you know, you're taking the higher road that this like exactly like what you said, it's a rite of passage right now. And, you know, um, it's interesting. I mean, I know that we're digressing a little bit, but it's interesting about the education system and how things are changing anyway with with all of our kids staying at home. Right. And and then having the option of hybrid or having the option of staying at home, you know, more homeschooling. I attended a TED talk uh, where they proposed the university professors actually proposed instead of having classes and degrees, but almost carrying around like a virtual resume of things, of classes and things that you took, you know, to show this is really what I have. It's not my resume. These are the classes and the courses that I had, you know, and I thought it was an interesting concept of the way education could possibly be. Right. Um, And uh, I just thought it was a really interesting um, way to look at things. So, yeah, and I think that's correct because who determines who's learning or not, Mm -hmm. right? Mm Mm-hmm. Who determines who's learning? What we do in education today, we determine whether a child is learning by the state-mandated test scores. But what if I'm just not a good test taker? So does that mean I don't learn? Does that mean I'm going to leverage my daughters for this again? I have an older daughter. My oldest daughter is brilliant. She's an A student. Has always been an A student. My middle daughter's She's equally brilliant, probably more brilliant. I, she's more brilliant. I hope they don't never listen to this. She's more brilliant. And this is why, if you look at where the future is, my A student daughter, she can read and regurgitate back to you everything that she read, and she's a great test taker. Mm-hmm. My C student daughter could care less. She wants to formulate her own opinions and she can care less about what you write. This is my thoughts on that. And if 
it doesn't go with your answers, then so be it. Now, in Silicon Valley, if I have a startup company on paper, you're going to look at my A student's resume and say, we're going to hire her, Mm. but she's not going to grow your company. My C student daughter is going to challenge the norm and create the next technology for your company that's going to make you a billion dollar company. My C student daughter is self-taught on four instruments. My C student daughter has started her own company. Now my A student daughter, she's doing great, but she can't get out of the box. My C student daughter is out of the box and you're gonna think she's lesser just because the the school system has determined that she's a C student and you've determined her learning where she's more vocal, she's more outspoken, she's more creative, she's more educated in a variety of things that my A student daughter can't touch because all she can do is what's mm-hmm. on the syllabus. So interesting. And 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 both are great. Yeah. Both are mm-hmm. great. But when you're looking at the future of where we are in tech mm-hmm. and what you said those professors said, what they're looking for is out of the box thinkers. Absolutely. Who's out of the box thinkers? So if you look at my C student daughter's portfolio, you're taking her all day. But what we do today is we look at report cards and we look at resumes. But what we ha- what we have in the future through technology is my C student daughter now has a digital portfolio. If you if you did a search on my C student daughter and my A student daughter, my C student daughter is going to pop up being creative. My A student daughter, she's only on paper. Mm-hmm. So where we are in the future where we have companies like Google, Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, who have said we are no longer going to value the degree as the be-all, end-all. Show, show us your portfolio. Show us your portfolio. Show us your digital landscape. Show us, show us how you can perform you know, outside of those norms because what they found is you can have brilliant, brilliant, brilliant students who all they can do is regurgitate the information you get back to them. They're not creators. And there's a space for both people. But what we have done in education, we've subdued the people who don't want to follow the norm. Exactly. And, 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 and what we see in education is just, and, and that's who I was. That's who I fit. I remember one time, <laughs> because I was, I was a terrible student and always getting in trouble, I had to go uh, meet with this therapist. And uh, as part of me being probation with the whole scared straight deal, I had to go meet with this therapist. So the therapist said to me one day, your test record is amazing. Like, why can't you, you know, transition this, this skill set? Apply yourself. <laughs> yeah, and apply yourself. And it was very simple. I said, you know what? Nobody ever asked me what I wanted to learn. If you would have asked me, Gerald, what is it that you want to learn? And I would have told you, I'm into this, I'm into that, I'm into this, I'm into that. But we don't give kids the opportunity to figure out who they are as people. Who are you? Right. And then we have teachers that are limited in their ability to even make that assessment and be able to teach to a different variety of students. And and then when you add to that the different cultures that we have in school, right? We may have black kids from the hood, we may have white kids from from good homes, we may have latino kids who are first generation english, you may have and you got all of these diverse things going on and you got a teacher who's limited in their ability to mm-hmm. reach them. So where we are with with schools today, especially post covid, and because I have an insider information to kind of know what's going on in there, you have teachers that don't even understand the technology to deliver remote learning. So it's really it's going to be post COVID, whether it's hybrid or whether it's it's full, fully immersed digital. Our educators are not ready. I go on these forums all the time where teachers are saying, well, I don't know the technology or 
You know, it's not fair that we have to learn this new technology. What do you mean? It's education. That's what you do. Like, it's not going to be the same. It's not a one size fits all situation. And in relation to my organization, Mission Fulfilled, schools have to figure out how to embrace organizations like mine and bring in the people who can do it. Right. Get get rid of all the bureaucracy of what's going on and partner with organizations in the community that could bring new a new focus and new opportunities and new technologies and merge them with your teaching staff. Because when we look at technology and where we're going, right, 90 percent of our schools don't. If, if, if technology is the future. And STEM is the future. 90 percent of our public schools don't have any. IT, IT professionals, engineers in their buildings. So how can you say that you're teaching kids to to what's new and you don't have any of these people in your building? And taking a, a taking an instructor and signing them up for a code.org teacher preparation course does not turn them into computer scientists that can portray the type of passion to a kid to want them to do it that I could, right? They can't even create the type of analogies to make things culturally relevant because they're still trying to learn the technology where I can come in if I got boys, I can relate tech to sports. I can re- If I got mm. girls, I can relate tech to social media. I can relate tech to all of these different things that a teacher that's still trying to learn the technology can only teach to what's in the book. Exactly. And they're playing catch up, right? That's right. so amazing. Yeah, I love this conversation. You know, um, so let's talk a little bit more about Mission Fulfilled 2030. So when did this start? Where did you get the idea? And um, share a little bit more about some of the programs that you guys do. Okay, so and, and I'll take you back again. I graduated high school with 1.69 GPA. That doesn't get you into many engineering schools, <laughs> right? That does not get you into any engineering schools. So fortunately, um, I was able to go and get into Norfolk State University that had uh, um, open enrollment policy at the time. Thank God for the HBCU. I was able to test into the engineering department and I was able to get a degree in electronics engineering technology. Now, mind you, I have a young son at this time. So. Um, as my son is growing up, like I, I tell him all the time, we kind of grew up together. So when he was about eight and I was coaching his youth sports teams, I was a star athlete as well. I was a star athlete as well. And I realized, you know, as I graduated with a child that, you know, pursuing a degree that was going to be the baseline of his life, you know, was what I needed to do more so than per, uh, pursuing a career in athletics. So coaching his youth sports teams, I started working with the kids on his teams in tech because I'm like, this is where it is. Mm-hmm. You know, you guys can make a lot more money in technology and learning this than you will in sports because the average NFL career, four to five years, the average NBA career, four to five years. And if you are not a star, you're not making millions. Like the average NFL salary is about 300000 So if the average salary for the average person is about 300000 and you have a four to five year career, you may make a million. But mm-hmm. the intersection of where the engineer meets the athlete who's no longer in is about 30 years old. And from that point, the engineer is still going up and that athlete's on the downswing. And traditionally, athletes don't know how to take care of that money. So in the NFL right now, I think five years post-career, 85% of NFL players are bankrupt. So I started teaching, like, what what is that intersection? And then, you know, me being an engineer, I started teaching my son's teams, you know, how to, how to do tech. And then that just continued to do that. Um, helped a bunch of kids get into school, leveraging their athletic ability and wanting to go into STEM. So helped a lot of kids get into school and get scholarships that way. And then um, in 2017, I decided 
through my second son. I'm, I'm doing the same thing with my second son. And now the technology is better. So I was teaching um, mobile app development to my younger son's team. Wow. And that led to parents, parents saying, hey, I want my neighbor to be involved in this, or I want my son's cousin to be involved in this. And before I knew it, I had 50 parents waiting at waiting for me to finish basketball practice so they could participate in this program so i was like all right i I can't do this like this is not sustainable so i built um i launched the tech school for black boys which is a digital platform where i could kind of do remote learning so i was doing digital remote learning at the end of 2017. wow so when i rolled into 2018 i launched another pilot teaching um um, just beginner, be- beginner computer science and coding. And that did well. And I- I'm doing this in my spare time. So I wasn't really doing it full time or anything like that. And then at the end of, um, at the end of 2018, my older son recommended me for this, uh, Black Enterprise Modern Man Award from Black Enterprise. And I was nominated in 2019 as a Black Enterprise Modern Man for the work that I was doing in the community. And then that took off. And when COVID hit, when COVID hit in 2020, I already had this digital platform that was up and running. And I offered a, a free online computer science program. And it was it was something that was supposed to be really hyper local, but we couldn't run the local program. So I just opened it up online. And I ended up having three or four hundred kids in this program, not just local. I had kids in Canada. I had kids in the UK. I had kids in Africa in this program. So I was like, wow. all right, Jill, you may have something here. You may have something here. And then um, to expand on, like, uh, one of my mentors came to me and he was like, yo, like, you like the thought, one of the thought leaders in this space, like not only your story and how you got here, but you're taking kids that traditionally wouldn't have this opportunity to do this thing and be taught by somebody who's an African-American and in this space. So I wrote the book, Motivate Black Boys, How to Prepare for Careers in STEM. Um, I launched the book at the um, Black Enterprise at the Black Enterprise Convention, and the book became an Amazon bestseller the first day. Oh, man. So that kind of laid the framework from what was to become Mission Fulfilled. So what Mission Fulfilled is, is outlined in this book. It's it's how to take a young man who traditionally doesn't have the tools or the home background or what what someone else would have in place to be successful and how to help them to become successful. And when I launched Mission Fulfilled, it was like, you know what, Gerald, like you have the ability to impact so many more people and and just having a 20 year career as a federal government contract and really not seeing seeing an influx in more people like me. And when I got there, when I got to this place, I have this picture that I show all the time. And um, my first consulting job, <laughs> it's like this whole course of uh, this whole new engineers. And it's like two, two black people in it. And then that was, and I, I didn't, I didn't view the world as that, at that, at that moment. Like I, I'm thinking I'm going to walk into a space where I was going to have a mentor and someone who had come before me. And I, I didn't have that. And what I decided to do, I was like, you know, I, I think people should have mentors that look like them or understand their culture and where they come mm-hmm. from and don't have to suffer imposter syndrome because they don't feel like they fit into this this specific paradigm of, of how it's supposed to be done or feel like, you know, you're the special one. And you're the you're the token. You're our token student mm-hmm. or our token person. And initially, I kind of felt like that because I'm looking around and I'm like, like, who do I go to? I don't, I don't, I don't understand this culture. Like, who's going to help me navigate this culture? 
And I just felt like, you know what? Looking at the data today, where black male educators make up less than 2% of the public school workforce, black men make up less than 5% of the digital high tech and STEM workforce, something has to be done, right? No, I'm one person, I'm one individual, but I'm like, I'm gonna launch this organization where one, black males should have black male educators in their K through 12 schooling. And if they don't, I'll create it outside of school through Mission Fulfilled. Young black males should be able to have high tech mentors. And if they don't have them in school or don't have the family connections that I'm going to create that through Mission Fulfilled, every young black male should be able to have a high tech mentor. And if they don't, I'm going to create that outside of school through Mission Fulfilled. And I just feel like, you know, in order for us to bridge the digital divide and also make a dent in the income to wealth gap, there's organizations like mine that have to be in place and that need to be funded, that need to be funded. And when I look around, it's like um, I come from a specific background that I know and I understand. As a nonprofit, I look at the organizations that get funding to help young black males or young black females, and those founders aren't people that look like me. Mm. So if they don't understand my lived experience, how can you create a future of people that that's really going to be relevant to, 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 to do the goals that you say you set out for when you don't even have the lived experience to understand the cultural relevance of what we do. I had a meeting with a, um, a gentleman who works for the Boys and Girls Club. And he said, hey, I want to bring your organization in to run this program. Like we have a coding program and our girls do fine in it, but our boys do terrible. And I told him, I was like, it's, it's not culturally relevant for them. I said, they don't have somebody who's teaching like them. They don't have someone who can put the sports analogies or put some rap lyrics into what we're learning. And he said, that's it. <laughs> he said, that's it. And I was like, that's important because I got to feel like with someone I'm learning from, I need to feel like there's a connection. I need to feel like they understand me. And when that doesn't happen, I'm going to disengage. And when I disengage, traditionally what happens with young black males is he's a problem kid. Not that you could not engage him. You did not have the ability to engage him. He's a problem child. And I, we, we see a lot of that with, with education, right? If a teacher can't reach a kid, it's the kid's fault and the kid's a problem child or the kid has a discipline problem more so than the teacher couldn't reach the student. When I, when I graduated college, um, I, I, I might as well give you this. This is my first experience with racism. <laughs> my first experience with racism. So I graduate um, college. And prior to that, I had worked for this company, this tech company in Rochester, New York. And I originally I applied for an internship my junior year. And I didn't get accepted to the internship. So what I did was I applied through a... Uh, um, I applied through an agency to get a job just to be soldering boards, just so I could be in that environment. So I take this job, it's a minimum wage job, and I'm basically like virtually on like an assembly line. And I realized that there's a problem with one of our processes. And we weren't meeting, we weren't meeting our pass fail metric. So I was like, it's not the problem that we're not meeting the metric. There's a problem with the process. So I stay after work one day and I show the manager, I'm like, listen, this is the problem with the process and this is what we need to add to this process. So he says to me, what do you do? I was like, I'm an engineering student. So he was like, why are you not in the internship program? I said, I didn't get accepted to your internship program. So then he goes to talk to somebody and they get me in the internship program. Now, while I'm in the internship program, I noticed another problem. Like we we would test as technicians, 
we would test semiconductor material that went into these power generators and amplifiers. So we were failing parts that weren't putting out enough power to go into these um, amplifiers. So we were sourcing materials and we had to pay for a high a part that met a different standard just because our process was bad. So I realized again that the process was bad and the senior technician who was there, he was just a lazy guy. He wasn't really doing the job. So I realized that it wasn't the parts. It was our test fixture that was bad. So I had struck up a relationship with one of the Asian engineers and I built a new test fixture. I went to him. I didn't say anything with anybody. And I was like, I realized that this process is bad. And when these these components are not failing, it's our process that's failing. So he he tested my new fixture and he pitched it to the company because he knew they wouldn't take it from me. So um, he we were able to update update our test fixtures, and he told me later on that that saved the company two hundred and fifty thousand dollars that year. Right, so. That was fine. I'm just doing what I thought I was supposed to do. I'm an engineer. I'm excited about it. We solve problems. That's what we do. So that next year, going into my senior year, they made a promise. And there were um, there were two other engineers in the program that I was in who went to different white male counterparts, had great relationships with them. And um, and um, they, they told us that they were going to hire us upon graduation, right, which they did. They upheld their end of the bargain on that. But to decide where we where we would be placed in the organization, we had to take an engineering aptitude test to see where they were places, whether we would become senior technicians or engineers. So we take this test and I was confident about the test and did well on it. And they came back with my offer as a senior technician, which was fine. This is my first job out of college. Hey, I'm 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 a I'm a senior technician. Boom. So to celebrate, I go to lunch with my white male counterparts, and we're talking about you know we're talking about the test. So they were like, "Man, the test was hard." I'm like, "The test wasn't hard. Like the test wasn't hard at all." And um, and um, they said, "Well, you know, they were talking about the sections." So I found out that I scored 20 points higher than them on every section. They became engineers. I became a senior technician. I immediately go back and I resign. So my first job, my first career job out of college, I resigned on the first day. And the problem was we were told explicitly, like they they kept banging, you your position in this company will be determined by your engineering aptitude test. So they became engineers. I became a senior technician. The difference in that was $15,000 in salary and an additional week vacation. You can never catch up from that point. And I understood from my father, because my father came home from work every day and said, the man, the man, the man, the man, the man. So in my mind, it was like the man got me. <laughs> the man, the man is trying to suppress me. So I resigned. So my project manager, so mind you, there's no other um there's no African Americans in the engineering department or the technician shop. I would have been the only one. So my project manager comes to me and he says, Well, Gerald, you know, there were only two engineering slots and you know, my white male counterparts got them. So I was like, you know, understanding that I scored the best on the engineering aptitude test. Why didn't I receive one of those roles? Right. And he tried to skate around the issue. And um, I said, well, there's a difference of $15,000 in salary. So he said, well, can you come back tomorrow? And we can see if we can adjust the salary. So I came back the next day and they tried to uh, give me an additional $10,000. And I was like, yeah, but what about the additional week vacation? Right. They didn't think I, I read all the documentation. so. He said, well, well, we're not going to be able to do that. So I was like, well, then you're going to have to keep my resignation. So in saying my goodbyes, I went to talk to the Asian engineer um, that, you know, had befriended me and took me under his wing. And he said, Gerald, you know, I don't know if this means anything to you, but 
I actually recommended you for my engineering position. And he was like, based on the fact that you helped the company um, build that new tech fixture and save the company $250,000, I thought you were, you know, you were head, head and shoulders above, you know, the other technicians that have come through. And he was like, quite frankly, in the last five years, he was like, you're the only one who's created anything, you know, out of the, out of the people in the internship program. And I was like, you know, I, I can't. And he, he tried to ask me to stay, but I just stay in five. I was like, I can't do it. I can't do it knowing the fact that I was better and someone else was selected. And I was, you know, and I told him, I was like, you know, that's, that's just, you know, in my mind, like I can't get out of the fact that this is potentially racism. I don't know what you, what you call it, but in my mind and how I was raised and trained, this is racism at its finest. So, and it just so happened, I was assistant coaching at my old high school, vocational high school. The, um, the electronics instructor has a heart attack. So the electronics instructor in my old high school has a heart attack and the athletic director called me and she said, Gerald, um, your, your old instructor had a heart attack. And because you have an engineering degree, you actually qualify to teach this electronic vocation here. Would you take the job? And she actually walked me into the school district and said, you know, we need to hire him not only for who he was in school and the fact that he's a perfect example of how our students can transition from being, you know, low, <laughs> low students with low grades to what the outcome could actually be if, you know, we get someone like him working with these kids. So um, I actually taught for two years. I taught um, three years. I actually taught high school tech, high school electronics for one year, and I taught middle school technology for two years. So just being on the inside of the education system and seeing how it worked, you know, was something that I was like, I can't do the type of work that I want to do inside of the education system because my hands are tied and what I can do. But on the outside, you know, I can really create change and really create opportunities for young black males like me. And I tell people all the time, like people ask me, well, what about girls? Like, you know, your program <laughs> focuses on boys. And I have a simple, I have a simple answer for that. Like I have three daughters. The chances that my daughters will have an opportunity to marry a man in the mold of their father is about 2%. That's what keeps me up at night. So it behooves me to work with young black males to not only empower the black family, but right now in this country, black women are the most educated people in the country. They're getting the most degrees. They're getting, you know, in, in relation to our diversity, inclusion and, and equity, we're solving that problem with black women because black women are in college at about 15 to 1 over black males. So even when you're looking at technology, at those numbers, you're still going to put out way more African-American women than African-American men, which is a problem when you're talking about the family dynamic. So when you have a family dynamic where African-American women are up here and then the men are down here, you have this disparity that a lot of women, if you look at the, the marriage statistics for black women, it's really low. And one of the reasons it's really low because there's the, the education gap. So because you have this education gap, then you have, you know, single mothers and you have th this whole snowball effect of not educating young black males. And then we have the school to prison pipeline where black males are incarcerated more than anybody else. Black males are more suspended than everybody else. So there's this whole snowball effect that happens because you don't have more programs like Mission Fulfilled 2030, right? So yeah. there's an investment that need to be made. And when we look at where the investments are going, you know, we can say that this is systematic of, you know, systems that have put it, put, been put in place to subjugate black boys where we don't have a rite of passage into being head of household or being the leaders of our families. Mm -hmm. I get it. And yeah, and if this is 
totally what drew me to what you were doing because it was so different, right? Than what you're seeing out there. But I totally get it. Um, you know, I love the story behind it, but then also the reason why you're doing it, right? Too. And and it's it's incredible. And I think it's definitely needed. Um, you know, let's talk about some of your goals for 2030, right? So you have listed on your website you're at, you want to activate a hundred thousand black boys in a tech and STEM, build a network of tech coaches and mentors. Engage 1,000 companies to commit to seeding youth tech programs, hiring and developing diverse talent. So, you know, looking at those goals, I mean, you still, it's hard to say, yes, you still have nine more years, right? But if someone is interested in what they're hearing about here, you know, with Mission Fulfilled 2030 and they want to be involved or help, you know, what kind of help do you need to push the needle forward with those goals? Seed funding, right? You know, it's always funding. Um, we need so when we when we look at that high level goal, right? The goal is to impact one hundred thousand black male youth in ten years. So if we look at economically, if we educate a hundred thousand black boys in ten years, and say let's look at ten thousand boys a year, and let's look at that incrementally, and in five years of them getting into the workforce, they are STEM educated and they are engineers, computer scientists, cybersecurity engineers. And within five years time, they become six figure earners. In 10 years, one and one, that's a that's a billion dollars incremental income to black families per year. So in 10 years, you're looking at a $10 billion economic income to black families. So when we're looking at this diversity and inclusion initiative in regards to um, that the um, the debt to income ratio for white males and black males, there's a huge disparity. So not one. So in one vein, we can attack the debt to income ratio and actually improve the economics of the black family and get closer to making the black family self-sustaining. Then there's the digital divide where, you know, I've talked about this through my whole conversation. Like if black males make up less than 5% of the high tech and STEM workforce, there's a huge digital divide gap there. So we can attack the digital divide. Um, Black male mentors. When a black man from a lower socioeconomic standing becomes successful. And this is what anybody would do. Why would they stay in that environment? And they don't, they leave. So we still have a situation where someone like me who came from a substandard situation and made it, the first thing I did was got a better situation for my son. But what did that do to my community? It eliminated me from my community. So now they can't see me. They can't see me. So where I didn't have any professionals growing up to look up to. And then I did the same thing. I was complicit. Once I made it, I was gone. So now those people behind me could not see me. So I I recognized that really quickly as a young man and said, no, I got to go back. I got to go back. They need to see me. They need to know that I exist. They need to know that. I've grown up just like them in in conditions where, you know, it was a fight to get out. You know, I grew up in conditions where most people have never had a police officer put a gun to their head. It's never happened for most people. By the time I was 18 years old, 15 boys that I grew up with, played youth sports with, um, hung out with in the neighborhood were dead. Right? People don't grow up in those conditions a lot. So to be able to make it through that and to come back and say you can make it is what had to be done. And that's what Mission Fulfilled is doing in the fact that we're going to put together 10,000 black male mentors in tech that have made it and go showcase them to these communities that don't have it. So that's where the 10,000 black male mentors come in. And we're finding those people And Clubhouse has been very successful for us. And we do we do a room every side every Saturday called Black Men in STEM, where I can get these brothers and let them know this is what we're doing 
And this is how you can give back. You know, you're not alone in this fight because most of us, we can tell the same story. We're the only engineer in the room. But because we're dis dispersed all throughout the country, we don't tend to get together. So Clubhouse has been great in getting those men together and saying, here is where we can have an opportunity to have unity and impact. So that's the 10,000 black male mentors. And then a thousand companies, right? In order for us to see through this vision, we need a thousand companies to come together to provide us what's the latest data out there. All of these companies out there are saying, well, we can't find talented black men in STEM. Well, we're building them right here. Are you, are you interested in seeding the future? The future in tech, when you look at the span of tech, companies like Apple, Facebook, Google, they know what the next 10 years look like. Because they know what the next 10 years looks like, you should be coming to Mission Fulfilled and saying, this is what our next 10 years look like. Can you develop people with these skills? That's how we can partner with those companies. They can come to us and say, this is what our next five years looks like. Can you create for us or help us develop some African-American talent that fits this, fits this mode? The schools are not going to do it. The schools are not equipped to do it. Our universities are not equipped to do it because they can't move that fast. But it's organizations like Mission Fulfilled and some of these other uh, tech and STEM programs that can be agile and we can adjust to what the need is quickly. And when we can have those thousand companies who are willing to see the vision and partner with us, we can create the change that everybody wants to see. But the question is, do you really want to see that change? Do you really want to see it? Because if you want to see it, then we're here. We're here. We're doing all the work that you you say you can't do. I talk to I talk to recruiters all the time. Well, there's no black male talent out there. We would like to we would like to hire them, but there's no talent. So what are you doing to see the future? What are you doing to partner with my eight year olds is the next digital workforce ten years from now. My eight year olds are eighteen. They're my 12-year-olds are, are 22. They're the next digital workforce. So if you claim that there's a shortage, you can't start at the shortage and try and find people who are not there. You have to go back and build the workforce of the future through organizations like Mission Fulfilled. And, you know, I have to keep telling the story to say we are here to help you build that, the next digital workforce, those next cyber professionals, those next engineers, the next creators. I tell the kids that um, I work with, black boys are the future of digital innovation. And it's only one reason. You don't have our ideas. Our, 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 our ideas are not even out there. We don't get a chance to put our ideas out there. So the, the, the next innovation is, is stuck in the head of some, you know, a, a, a 10-year-old African-American kid who just doesn't have the outlet and may never have the outlet. So I think even when you, when you look at the future of what technology brings, if you want to expand what that future is, then you have to allow, you know, kids who, who come from these inner cities to be a part of it. Like, and I think, you know, when we look at what's happening in our country and this country is a melting pot of talent. And a lot, a lot of us are subjugated. It doesn't matter, you know, when you look at technology, it's a white male dominated field, right? It doesn't matter whether you're black, doesn't matter you're Latinx, doesn't matter whether you're Asian, doesn't matter. It's still white male dominated. And in order for us to kind of, you know, get back to where we should be as a country, because when you look at technology wise, like we're no longer top in the U.S. We're not... <laughs> We're not dominant technology-wise. And I, I think it's because a lot of the talent is subjugated because of, you know, how we, how we, it's, it's, just, I, I, it's, it's just, such it's, great it's, points, you know, and it's funny. Yeah. I'm just, I'm so thankful for this conversation because, you know, what you're saying is, is the truth and it's out there. And a lot of the times people are blind because they, um, 
are, you know, stuck to what they know and, and the comfort and where to go and finding those resources, right? And so it's so um, fascinating to have this conversation with you um, and see it from a different light. So thank you, you know, very much. Um, I absolutely, absolutely love it. I'm hoping that people that listen to this, you know, who know a company or who know uh, people that can be mentors, you know, can can at least get connected to uh, Mission Fulfilled because um, I've been enjoying this conversation so, so, so much. Um, you know, before we head out, because you, you've spent so much time educating and just sharing your perspective, and I just thank you so much. But before we head out, is there was there anything else uh, with Mission Fulfilled that you wanted to cover that we might not have covered? Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to support Mission Fulfilled, you can just go to missionfulfilled2030.org. Excuse me. Hit the donate button or hit the contact us button if you want to connect with us. If you feel like you have an opportunity, you want to partner with us. And also, we're getting ready to launch a cybersecurity awareness initiative. We'll probably launch that in April. And I don't know if you know this, but there's a, a lack of cybersecurity talent and there's currently a million available jobs in cyber that are unfilled because we don't have the talent here in the U.S. So in order for us to fill those roles, it's going to take participation from everyone. So what we're doing with Mission Fulfilled is we're trying to skill up you know, some African-Americans in this space by creating cybersecurity awareness programs. That's going to be a K through 12 initiative, then a post-secondary initiative. We're going to try and upskill people who are actually in the workforce and need this new new tech. So cyber cybersecurity is huge um, and having the opportunity to protect the nation's data for over 15 years. Like I'm really passionate about it. And my kids used to ask me, well, dad, what do you do? And I was like, I protect the data of the American people. And it was like, dad, that's what you do? Like we you just, just see you on the <laughs> and I think a lot of people don't understand what cybersecurity is like I did when I graduated from school. I didn't know what cybersecurity was. And I, I was fortunate enough to work with a company that said, Gerald, you're smart. We're going to move you to our cyber department. <laughs> so um, we have a cybersecurity initiative that we're launching in hopes to really be a player in trying to fill some of these these jobs. And by next year, there'll be close to two million unfilled jobs in cybersecurity. So. MissionFulfilled2030.org. Um, we're fighting a good fight, and um, you know any support, any help that we can get is definitely needed. And you can reach out to us at MissionFulfilled2030.org. Awesome. So you know, before I I let you go, because you have dropped so much wisdom uh, in this episode, so I thank you. But I always like to ask um, this one question to um, my guests before they leave. But what's one piece of advice that you yourself, Gerald A. Moore Senior, <laughs> can share with our listeners on making the world a better place? Don't be afraid of diversity. Diversity is good. Don't be afraid. I think. I think. Um, a lot of people are afraid of diversity, right? They're afraid of, of giving up things. <laughs> and I, I tell my children all the time, we talk about diversity and equality, and it's a simple analogy that I use with them. And I said, when we talk, when we have this diversity and inclusion talk, are you willing to give up half of the things that you have, toys and, and video games, sneakers, to people who are less fortunate? And the answer is always no, right? And I think that's where we are in this country. When we truly talk about diversity and inclusion, are you willing to give up the privileges that you've always had and these systems that have been in place to subjugate most other races? Are you willing to give those up? And I think the answer still today is no. Wow. It's so much truth in what you say. And again, um, it's been amazing to have you speak, have you share, but then also give us challenges, right, for, for the future and to make sure that we definitely look into, you know, how we're looking at the world, right? And so I... I just want to thank you for um, allowing me to have this space with you. I think that I've definitely learned a lot and um, I'm excited to see in the next 
uh, 10 years, nine years ish, you know, um, what, what you guys are going to be doing. And I'm hoping that I, I, it sounds like you're doing a great job on clubhouse, but you know, getting some people, but also hopefully, you know, you get some really good people connected, uh, to, uh, the mission because I think that it's wonderful. So thank you, Gerald, so much for what you do. Um, and I'm so glad that you were here on this show today. And thank you, Dr. Natalie, for having me and, um, you know, giving people an opportunity to put their voice and views out into the universe. Like, I think it's an awesome thing, and I think that we need more of it. And, um, you know, this is definitely an awesome platform, and I look forward to, you know, working with you and coming back in the near future. Thank you so much for tuning in to Connecting a Better World, and thank you, NOCO FM, for supporting this show. If you haven't heard, NOCO FM is dedicated to bring diverse voices and spotlighting a unique culture to Fort Collins and beyond. For more information, please visit www.noco.fm. If you connected to something in this episode, we would love to hear from you. Our contact info will be listed in the show notes, as well as you can reach us on our social media channels. Please feel free to share our podcast with your friends and loved ones. For more shows, please tune in to noco.fm online. This has been a production of Loudspeaker Networks. For more on this and other programs, visit loudspeaker.fm.